Welcome everybody to the Rounds Table. I'm Kieran, your host. Thanks for tuning in this week. We have a very exciting week for you and a very exciting new guest. It's my friend Paxton Back. He is a resident in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia and he joins me by phone from UBC tonight. Paxton, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. It's a pleasure. Paxton and I went to medical school at Queen's and we've shared several an evening and a cold pint together, so it's great to have him on the show. He's a very intelligent uh, resident and I'm looking forward to the analysis today. And we have two very exciting articles to talk to you about. The first one is called CPAP for Prevention of Cardiovascular Events in Obstructive Sleep Apnea. It's published in the New England Journal of Medicine on September 8, 2016. The first author is R. Doug McAvoy. Paxton, why did you choose the CPAP article uh, this week? Sure, Kieran. So first, let me clarify. This no article uh, belongs in the New England Journal without a clever acronym. And so this one is known as the uh, Sleep Apnea Cardiovascular Endpoints uh, Trial, or the SAVE trial. I chose it because we see a lot of OSA in internal medicine. I'm sure you're no different. And it's a pain, right? It's a pain to diagnose. It's a pain to treat. It's expensive for the machines. Patients don't want to use them, and we spend all this time trying to convince them of the benefits. So if we're going to invest all this time and energy in pushing CPAP, we better know it works. And I totally agree with you that uh, what is the point of you know doing all these things if we're not able to, with confidence, tell our patients that there's good evidence to back it up? And a lot of things make sense conceptually in medicine, but uh, they don't always work out to be uh, as effective as we think. So just for our listeners who may not want to go through the whole article on their own, what is the bottom line, what is the main message that you can take away from this article, Paxton? And the bottom line is that after 3.5 years, there was no difference uh, in those on CPAP versus those not using CPAP in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. So that sounds dismaying a little bit. Uh, let's get into how they did their study and why uh, maybe these results didn't come out to be the way they are. Beyond your own personal views on the um, prevalence of uh, OSA in your practice, why is this article important on a larger scale? Uh, sort of what's the rationale that they had for doing this study? So a little bit more background. So this is a fairly monumentous trial. It's the largest CPAP trial that's ever been done. Uh, it enrolled just over 2,700 uh, adults for over three point years of CPAP. So it was a really huge effort. And the background here is that, you know, we know that OSA is common and we know that it affects all of these, that it's related to all these various outcomes that are, that are also related to cardiovascular health. We know that it's a risk factor for AFib, for hypertension. Um, we know that it also correlates with cardiovascular mortality. So, of many studies have been done in the past looking at how it affects more of these proximal causes. We know that use of CPAP is effectively able to treat hypertension or reduce systolic blood pressures by, I think they say, 5 to 7 millimeters of mercury. There's some evidence to suggest it increases insulin sensitivity. Uh, we know that using CPAP increases your chances of having successful cardioversion out of AFib. So we know that its use helps with a lot of, of these proximal risk factors, but no one's ever been able to show that it actually affected the bottom line, and that is those big events like stroke, like MI, like hospitalization for heart failure, etc. There has been a number of, of smaller studies done in the past. I think there's two equivocal studies that have looked at uh, CPAP in relating to cardiovascular death without showing any real benefit. Observationally, though, it has been thought it has been linked to preventing cardiovascular death. So that was the rationale behind this big trial. So a monumental and brave trial trying to 
really nail down all of these suggestive findings of surrogate risk factors for cardiovascular disease to try to prove once and for all that we can save patients from cardiovascular death and outcomes by using CPAP. Clever, I see what you did there. Pun intended, as always. So take us through the methods really briefly if you can. Describe the population and the design and, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Certainly. So this was this was a large trial, as I mentioned. It was a it was an international multi-center randomized trial in I think seven different countries, led by a group out of Australia. They were coordinating the whole thing. They enrolled adults between 45 and 75 years old with a diagnosis of moderate to severe sleep apnea. And in order to improve the sensitivity, they selected adults with a known history of either coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease. And we can get to the implications of that a little bit later. They enrolled them in the trial, randomized them. It was an open-label trial, but did have blinded assessment at the end, and patients were randomized either to uh, CPAP versus no CPAP and sort of regular treatment around uh, cardiovascular risk factors. Patients were enrolled for 3.5 years, and at the end of it, they assessed this composite endpoint that I mentioned of death from cardiovascular causes, MI, stroke, or hospitalizations for angina, heart failure, TIAs, etc. Sort of a typical cardiovascular outcome trial looking at a less typical non-pharmacologic strategy uh, at trying to prevent that. What, what did you think were the strengths of this study? I think one of the major strengths in the study is that it is fairly straightforward in its design. They're not trying to do anything too clever here. They're simply taking two populations which they've selected to be at at least a moderate to high risk for their endpoints, and they're simply putting CPAP machines on, on half of them and then seeing what happens. Excellent. And what did you think some of the weaknesses or potential areas of concern in the design were for you? One of the weaknesses that uh, potentially jumps to mind for me, as you and I know, diagnosing OSA is, is not nearly as easy as it sounds. Overnight oximetries, a lousy test, polysomnography is almost impossible to get. They used a device called the Apnea Link, which was donated by Philips Respironics. Honestly, I don't know what this is. I've never seen one before. They seem to suggest that it's very reliable in its diagnosis, but as you know, when you get into these patients, uh, there can be lots of confounding between central sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea. So that's one big question mark for me here, and it's a difficult one to find your way around because polysomnography in across seven countries and 2,700 people is, is obviously fairly prohibitive. Maybe a practical solution to a study design problem and, you know, in the absence of our uh, experience with using this particular device, we're not really clear on its validity for diagnosing OSA, but presumably, you know, uh, lots of very smart statistical individuals uh, at the New England Journal have looked at this and, and I guess it's, it's been accepted as a acceptable method for diagnosing OSA. So we'll have to just sort of take it at, at face value in that regard. If anyone from Philips Respironics is listening, I'd love to get my hands on one too. So Yeah, perfect. Send us one to, uh, to Healthy Debate and the rounds table, and we, we can evaluate it on ourselves if you like. Overall, it sounded like you felt that it was a very well-designed study with a couple of caveats to it. Do you think you know there was any fatal flaws? I accept the results. I guess I guess the questions there still remains a, a couple of them. The bottom line from this study is that there was no benefit to CPAP, and I think that's the only real takeaway that we can we can get from this. One of their secondary analyses actually looked at quality of life factors, sleepiness, days of work missed, etc., and actually did show a benefit there for CPAP, which is in keeping with the previous literature. So so certainly symptomatically, it does seem to help some patients. But I think the bottom line is that this is what it showed. When you really delve into it, though, there are some questions. First and foremost, the the average adherence to CPAP was just 3.3 hours per night, 
which is quite low. I was I was very surprised to see that, and I was also surprised to hear that that's in keeping with a lot of other CPAP studies. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, my dad uses CPAP. I like to think he uses it for more than three hours a night. Uh, my apologies, Dad, for exposing your private health care on you, but I, you've given me permission to that before. But, uh, you know, I thought about that as well. They did demonstrate, though, that the apnea hypopnea index, one of the ways that we diagnose OSA, which is effectively how many times per hour you either go apneic, stop breathing, or your oxygen goes low, was significantly reduced down from about 28 to 3. So I, I think that that shows that even though it's only three and a half hours of CPAP use per night, that at least that you're getting a very effective response by doing it. Yeah, absolutely. They, it definitely did work while they had it on. This is, this is from the uh, apnea hypopnea index as measured by the CPAP machines themselves. But it was interesting at how low that was. And there is a signal in both in this paper and in some of the previous literature that adherence over four hours a night has more of an impact on potentially the outcomes that they're looking for. So that will be a persistent question is, was the adherence just not quite high enough to show the benefit that they wanted to? Uh, I think that's an excellent point. Maybe if we do a even more tightly controlled randomized trial, albeit, I don't know if they'll be able to ever replicate one this large. Uh, but if you can get patients to use it longer, maybe you do start to see a difference, which would support some of the previous literature that's been reported. Can you, uh, just for our listeners, just summarize the main primary composite endpoint as far as, uh, you know, the absolute numbers and, and rates uh, of the composite outcome? They followed up on these patients at, I think it was 3.7 years. And the, the composite endpoints between, it was uh, 17% of a composite endpoint in the group that had used the CPAP and 15.4% in the usual care group. So not a real significant difference between them. But as I mentioned in the secondary analyses on other health-related quality of life metrics, they did seem to show some benefit to the CPAP there. So who does this study apply to? Who's your typical patient who's included in this study that you know, you're going to tell your patients in the future of this kind of individual? Unfortunately, this, this, this treatment doesn't really work for you as far as preventing cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, so we go to our table one. I think it's a it's a fairly representative group from the patients that I see, with a couple of caveats. So average age of the patients enrolled was just over 60 years old. A significant majority were male. I think they're about 80% male. A large amount of this study was carried out in Asia, so there was a definitely a skew towards um, a higher number of Asians. I think about two thirds of the of the uh, patients enrolled were Asian, whereas a little less than a third were Caucasian. But uh, otherwise, uh, in terms of comorbidities, they're fairly representative. Lots of hypertension, obviously, lots of heart disease or, or uh, cardiovascular disease. There was a few other small surprises in here. I was surprised at how, that only seventy five percent of the patients enrolled were actually on ASA. But generally speaking, I think their medication profiles were pretty similar to what we do tend to see. Yeah, and I think and I think the sort of severity of their cardiovascular risk, if you like, was uh, represented by that you know table one that you just discussed, and the fact that fifteen to seventeen percent of the individuals involved in this trial had a one of the components of that primary outcome, whether that was a hospitalization or a stroke or a heart attack. So a fairly sick population overall, or at least a fairly higher risk population. So. And that's a and that's an interesting point because that's also a double-edged sword. That was one of the other potential criticism that I heard uh, about this paper was maybe the ship has sailed for these patients. You know, maybe the damage has been done, the cardiovascular risk is in place, and to show a benefit from of CPAP at this time is um, they're too far gone, so to speak. Yeah, maybe you need to move the prevention upstream a bit and focus on people who don't have established cardiovascular disease but are at very high risk for it. 
takeaway main learning points of this article? Main learning point from this article is in yet another study, CPAP has not been shown to affect the bottom line of uh, the real solid cardiovascular endpoints like uh, hospitalization or, or death. Hmm. Is this going to change your practice at all? So I don't know. I think I think it's a, it's not quite black and white. I think that in a patient who can't afford CPAP or really hates the CPAP, you know, it potentially will push me to be a little bit less persuasive in encouraging it. But certainly in a patient who's symptomatic, who has, you know, that daytime sleepiness or, or mood issues and poor sleep on the CPAP, this does support, again, the use of CPAP for at least those symptoms. Just sort of to summarize, you would, wouldn't be so strongly advocating towards use of CPAP for prevention of cardiovascular disease, but definitely it has other effects if their quality of life and fatigued by their OSA. Is that is there anything else you, you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, exactly. And I mean, I think a lot of times we get a little bit distracted by our numbers, but that's often what matters to patients, right? They feel lousy and this is a way to make them feel better. So I'm not anti-CPAP by any means. Yeah, a disappointing, uh, a disappointing result, I think, for everybody who was hoping that this was going to be a non-pharmacologic intervention that was going to work. And unfortunately, we just didn't get it. Okay, well, thanks, Paxton. That was a really fascinating article. I think we'll hear more about that in the future, and who knows what kind of studies will be conducted again using CPAP for cardiovascular disease. Let's move on to the article that I selected for this week. The title is called The Effect of Escitalopram on All-Cause Mortality and Hospitalization in Patients with Heart Failure and Depression, the MOOD-HF Randomized Clinical Trial. It was published in JAMA in 2016, and the uh, first author is Christian Angerman. You know, Paxton, the reason that I chose this article is a couple, really a couple reasons. Sort of to put it in context of a patient that I saw, you know, heart failure I, I see all the time, as you do too, and most general internists as well as a lot of other physicians are involved in patients with heart failure. Yeah, but I saw an elderly gentleman who had heart failure and he just, like I just remember, he just seemed like he didn't care about any of his treatment. He didn't care, you know, what happened to him. He just lost all of his zest in life. This gentleman was clinically depressed. And we tried some different things to treat this depression um, in, in the hopes that he would also sort of take more involvement in his own care for his heart failure as he'd been in at a hospital a couple of times for it. And it just didn't work. I was dismayed at the ineffectiveness of antidepressants that I'd tried previously. And then this study caught my eye because it was sort of, you know, what you will find out to be a confirmatory uh, study to demonstrate the ineffectiveness of antidepressants in heart failure. Yeah, I thought it was it was a very interesting paper to choose as well. I think we've all seen that patient in hospital who's kind of developed that apathy or maybe they're just going through sort of their stages of grief. And I am certainly not used to prescribing SSRIs or antidepressants. So I read it with great interest too, wondering if this was a new medication that I needed to sort of add to my uh, list of more familiar meds. You know, for our listeners, the bottom line for this article is in patients who have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and comorbid depression, escitalopram as a class of SSRI medications is an ineffective therapy for the treatment of depression. So two negative trials that we're talking about today, and I'll take you through it. It's important in the, in the broader context of things is that depression is, is really, really common in patients both with cardiovascular disease and consequential heart failure in some of those individuals. It's about two to three times more common than, than in individuals without cardiovascular disease. And estimates are around sort of 10 to 40% of patients who have heart failure will also develop depression as well. So, you know, upwards of a third of your patients with heart failure are also going to have depression. And as we saw in the patient that I already described, 
studies have, have, have proven that depression really affects you know an individual's quality of life and ultimately affects their ad adherence to their heart failure therapies and they get into this terrible vicious cycle of hospitalizations for heart failure worsening depression you know and they're at increased risks of death ultimately because of it and the results you know not from just the patient's perspective but a system perspective this costs a ton of money for the healthcare system I mean, if these individuals are coming in and out of hospital because their heart failure is decompensating uh, more frequently than, say, somebody who's not depressed. I, I personally feel somewhat helpless uh, when, you, when you're faced with that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, the reason that this particular trial was done, that the evidence is kind of equivocal about the efficacy of uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that's escitalopram, you know, belongs to that class of antidepressant medications, because there's been some trials that show benefit in coronary artery disease, so in, in individuals who've had a heart attack, but there's only been one uh, randomized controlled trial in heart failure, um, and that was a very short duration. It was only a 12-week follow-up. So they didn't find any benefit in that study. Yeah, sad, sad heart CHF, speaking of tortured acronyms. Yes, exactly right. Uh, another clever but tortured acronym. They didn't find an, an effect in that trial, but often you know, a lot of people have criticized it to say, well, you didn't follow people long enough to see if they can get better. So... So they did the Mood HF trial to see if they could uh, if they could make things better. Oh, great! So what did we learn? Well, I was first going to tell you about the design of the study. So it's a multi-center, double-blind, randomized control trial, and they recruited patients from outpatient clinics in Germany. This is all a German study, um, and it assesses the efficacy of escitalopram for adult patients with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction, and NYHA, so that's New York Heart Association functional class 2 to 4, i.e. they're limited in their ability to do activities by their heart failure, with comorbid depression. And it excluded patients who within the last three months had had a heart attack or were taking other antidepressants. And, you know, other details about inclusion and exclusion, uh, the subtleties are also in the paper if you wish to look into that further. So they gave 372 patients between 10 and 20 milligrams of escitalopram, that was adjusted based on their age, because in elderly individuals, we often use only 10 milligrams. Um, and that was versus placebo. And they followed them for about 18 months. And the initial trial was planned for 24 months, but the data safety monitoring board stopped the trial early due to futility, i.e. nothing was working. And so they said there's no point in carrying this on for another six months. Nothing is happening. And their primary outcome was you know, assessing the time to death or hospitalization. So I'm going to turn this one back around on you. And did you have any particular, what, what were the strengths of the study design that really jumped out at you? I think like the CPAP trial, this was a really well-designed trial that, you know, addressed a really important question in a patient population that was very, very sick. And I liked the fact that they not only assessed adherence to the therapy by asking patients, are you taking your medication? But they also proved it biochemically by measuring escitalopram levels, which, you know, underlies a potential criticism that might be, well, maybe they're taking it, but they have so much fluid on board and edema that they're not able to absorb their escitalopram. Um, and in this case, they proved that, you know, that wasn't the case because the escitalopram levels were therapeutic. So they were taking it and they were absorbing it. So I really, really liked that uh, aspect of the methodology. It seems very well thought out. Then, uh, Did you have any particular concerns? Not really. I don't really have any major criticisms for this trial. There's definitely nothing that's a fatal flaw or a sinker for it. You know, I mean, I think there's a potential selection bias in the fact that patients volunteered to do this study. And in fact, there was 
about just over 2,000 patients who actually met the screening criteria for inclusion, but they didn't consent to participate. So, you know, maybe at the heart of it all, there's something different in the patients who are volunteering to do this study versus those who are not. Maybe their depression is slightly different and there might have been a different response. But I don't think that's a major point. And then, you know, their use of digoxin overall was a bit low, although there's a lot of hesitation to use digoxin these days. And we know it prevents hospitalization in heart failure. But either way, the, the populations are balanced on the rates of digoxin use, so it shouldn't affect your overall outcome anyways. I can't say I'm seeing a lot of digoxin these days anyways. So what were the main findings then, just if you can restate that? The, the finding, main findings were that about 64% of patients in both arms experienced death or hospitalization. And that was largely driven by hospitalization. So about 10% of patients died in the study, and 63% of them experienced hospitalization. But there was no differences between the group that received escitalopram versus placebo. Tell us a little bit more then about, about their table one. Is this, is this your population? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very typical heart failure population. Your typical patient in this study is a 62-year-old man who has ischemic cardiomyopathy, and his NYHA functional class is fairly limited. He's class 3 to class 4 heart failure, who's on appropriate chronic heart failure therapy, and he's been hospitalized in the last year for heart failure, who has moderate severity depression and no cognitive impairment that potentially contributing to his uh, overall care. So aside from that outcome then, what are your main learning points? What are you taking away from this article? For me, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors as a class are probably not effective uh, therapy for depression in the context of heart failure, which means we need to think about different strategies to treat the you know approximately 30% of patients with heart failure who develop depression. And we're just going to have to sit down and rethink it. Any uh, remaining questions here you think are, are unanswered? The, thing, the one thing that I thought about was it makes me wonder the quote-unquote depression that people with heart failure have is it somehow a different depression or a different neurochemical process than individuals who don't have heart failure but also develop depression? You know, we use the same diagnostic criteria, but is there somehow the biochemical or the physiology of it, is it somehow different? Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. It could, you could hypothesize it's everything from hypoperfusion just to, just to a form of, uh, like I said, grief or, and acceptance. Yeah, and I, I looked into it a little bit further just to see, you know, could I find some sort of description. And there's sort of interconnected mechanisms. So there's like, there's an autonomic nervous system dysfunction, cardiac arrhythmias, altered platelet function, inflammation that connect the two of depression and co congestive heart failure. So maybe underlying it all, there's some slight difference in the biochemical nature or physiology of depression that these patients have. And maybe that's why therapies that work in other individuals who are depressed are just not effective in, in heart failure. Hmm. It makes you wonder what the trajectory of their depression looks like if it's overlaid with the treatment of the heart failure, but it's probably a discussion for another day. So bottom line, does it change your practice? I would say absolutely. This is, a, for me, uh, although it's a negative trial, it's an absolutely a practice-changing trial. You know, I would often turn to SSRIs and even escitalopram as a first-line therapy for me to treat depression in patients who I see with heart failure because I often, you know, turn to that medication for depression in a lot of different patients I see whether they have heart failure or not. And I think in this case, the evidence is clear. I, I won't turn to that medication anymore or that class of medications. 
and I'm going to just counsel my patients carefully that look, this is a common problem, but we need, uh, you know, I'm going to try to work with you and, and need to see a psychiatrist, etc. Try to find a, a different way to treat your depression. We need to find some alternative strategies. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, thanks, Kieran. Yeah, thanks, Paxton. It's a great couple articles. Now, time for my favorite part of the show. Paxton's brand new, so he's not allowed to say it's his favorite part of the show, but uh, maybe it will become his favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment. So, we like to talk about what is catching our eye in the news this week. Paxton, what are you reading about that's interesting? Yeah, so something that caught my eye that, that I thought was interesting, it was actually an article I was hoping to talk about today, but I don't think it's been published yet. As you know, I, I have an interest in addictions medicine, and I remember being at a conference uh, about two years ago down in California where the topic of e-cigarettes came up. And as you may or may not be aware, this is very, very controversial stuff in the world of addictions, with two uh, very discreet camps, those thinking that promotion of e-cigarette remains a bad habit, is a possible gateway to smoking, may encourage uh, young people to take up smoking, uh, versus those who believe this is an effective way to go with harm reduction in terms of smoking. And our, and our advocates for sort of accepting it and working uh, e-cigarettes into maybe even our, our treatment paradigms for, for smoking. Now, part of the interest here is that we really don't know much about the long-term effects, effects of e-cigarettes because, one, they're so new, and two, they're very, very poorly regulated as of yet, and so you can be exposed to vastly different substances um, depending on what you're being exposed to. The the article that caught my eye, or the news, the headline that caught my eye this week was actually a uh, presentation, I believe, made at the um, American College of Cardiology uh, meeting, um, where uh, some Italian researchers have actually looked at e-cigarette and their effect on aortic stiffness and blood pressure, and etc., in young smokers, because I think the pendulum has sort of been switching, moving towards uh, accepting this as, as a better alternative to cigarette smoking. So it was just interesting, and I, and I eagerly await the publication of the results, that this is a, a group of researchers from Greece, I think it was who are saying, hold the phone, the data is not quite here yet, and maybe these things aren't quite as, as innocent as we, uh, as we may suggest. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I have to admit, uh, you know, I see e-cigarettes around all the time. I even saw a patient with it today, and he was telling me about how you can buy different concentrations of nicotine in the, in the liquid that is vaporized, and you can dial in what kind of dose you want, and uh, it's a very sort of pharmaceutical approach to smoking, but hopefully it pans out to be beneficial and not just sort of replacing one vice with another. Weren't we just talking before the show about how the two of us are out of touch with technology? The world is passing us by. Yeah, exactly. So my good stuff segment this week is not so much news as it is, it's kind of a fun fact, but it came up in a news feed that I was reading and I thought it was just kind of interesting and very relevant to the world of evidence-based medicine. So, Paxton, do you have any idea where the Cochrane logo uh, originated? I have no idea, but I smell a new internal medicine Jeopardy rounds bonus question. For all those chief residents and those who organize medical Jeopardy out there, this is, a, I think, a pretty good one. So, it's a C that surrounds a logo in the center, and the C obviously is Cochrane. But the purple logo in the center, that's sort of a, a vertical line uh, with some horizontal dashes and then a little diamond at the bottom, which, you know, we'll post on our website, is actually a forest plot. And the forest plot comes from a study published by Crowley et al., a systematic review, one of the very, very first systematic reviews, um, and the first systematic review that demonstrated the benefits of corticosteroids in preventing infant respiratory distress syndrome. 
as for those of you who deal with pregnancy and, uh, and pediatrics will know that this was a huge landmark trial that has made an incredible difference in fetal outcomes by giving corticosteroids up front if, if there's a risk of premature delivery in these infants. So I thought it was just kind of neat that the logo from one of the biggest evidence-based you know, houses in the world comes from one of the most influential trials of all time. Well, that is some esoteric stuff, Kieran. Yep, esoteric but interesting. I always thought, that's me. Uh, well, anyways, Paxton, listen, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really, really enjoyed your article and your intelligent insight, and I really hope you, you come back. Uh, I'm happy to, Kieran. Thanks for having me, and uh, congratulations. From what I hear, you're doing a bang-up job so far, so uh, keep it up. Thank you. Talk to you next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?